1: Welcome to the RacerX Online Podcast presented by Fox Racing. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Foxhead.com. Visit local authorized Fox dealer. If your dealer doesn't carry Fox, and uh, get a new dealer. Uh, mountain bike uh, equipment available at Fox Racing, which applies to our guests today on the uh, on the RacerX Online Podcast. And uh, also, to RacerXOnline.com forward slash subscribe. Uh, sign up now for a sub. Uh, it's like 20 bucks, and uh, you get some free stuff, so it's great great to have on there and uh um it's a terrific magazine to keep checking out things and features and everything else that uh, that i do and we all do down at racer x so like i was saying uh, mountain bike gear from fox is applicable to this man on the line he's the father of eli tomac he's a mountain bike hall of fame uh bmxer uh all-time bmxer all-time road biker uh now involved in our sport with obviously with like i said his son eli john tomac what's up jt how are you I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I uh, just—you're an interesting guy. Like, clearly, you looking at me. I I don't do a lot of bicycle training. I think we've established that, but. Um, I find uh, uh you're always an interesting guy to talk to. The things you've done away from the sport of motocross are just legendary and um uh people, you know, sort of still talk about you in, in reverence tone, reverent tones because of things that you've done in the past. And um you know, now you're sitting you're taking a back seat to your son Eli and his incredible success and everything else and uh yeah, I just found you an interesting guy. I thought I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some stuff. I, I might ask you a few dumb questions, John, but you're used to that by now. I can take it. It's all right. Um, Hey, first let's touch on Eli. uh, The 2016 season probably hasn't gone as well as you and Eli and uh, Kathy would like. Uh, Certainly us us experts in the media um, thought he would uh, be a bit better in his first year at Cali. But there's the double shoulder surgery. There's a new bike. But there's still the Daytona win. And and I think we all think that Eli Come Outdoors will be one of the guys uh, going for the title. Um, but it hasn't been all uh, roses so far, has it, John?
3: No, you know he's not where he needs to be, and he's not where he's going to end up. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were we were pretty late getting. We weren't actually that late getting back on the bike. We we actually got a, a little bit ahead of schedule, mm-hmm. just a few weeks. But when you when you do what he did to his shoulders um you know having a couple extra weeks is nice especially (laughs) when you're starting on a a new bike so yep you actually got a little bit of seat time in october on a you know basically on a stock bike Mm -hmm. towards the end of october and then um then we started testing and uh supercross well motocross a little bit first um and then we did some supercross testing in november and then um you know that takes up a lot of time, and it takes up a lot of. Um, I don't know if people realize how much time it takes to test um, and get their settings right on these right. bikes. You know, it just it just eats up days where, where um, you could be training. You know, doing mm-hmm. a normal training program and and working on your your craft of on motorcycle. You know, work and then add in your training. But when you're testing, you're testing, and you're not doing that other stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that ate up some days in in November, and then uh, he had a little crash in December, and it took. Actually, I had to take two weeks off the bike. You know, I don't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really public information, so that that didn't help him either no. you know, going into the season. And then, and then um, it's been a bit of a struggle to get him comfortable on this motorcycle. So, right. Um, I, I feel like we're progressing. It's just slow. You know, it's slow mm-hmm. to happen. Right. So. Well, um you have the Daytona win And when too. you're in the middle yeah. of race season that you know slow is you know, slow is <laughs> yeah. Not acceptable,
1: yeah, you know what I'm saying yeah. It's like you gotta get it done and, yep. and um, it can be quite frustrating, so but you got the anyway. Daytona win, so like you know in a way, you're like, okay, we gotta win, you know what i mean we we know right. what we're doing I, that had to have been a bit of a l a bit of a relief for sure,
3: yeah, yeah, i mean we you know, I don't think we're any different than any of you guys watching the sport, we expect him to podium and he expects to podium
2: mm-hmm.
3: pretty much every week, unless something bad happens right, or at least right. top five. I mean, sure. he's floating top fives, which mm-hmm. is okay, but that's not, I mean, when you're second last year, you have multiple wins in the series. Um, you want to be a lot closer than we are right now. I'll mm-hmm. tell you that, you yeah. know, and, and physically he's not probably where he was last year at this time, but mm-hmm. he's not, so far off that you can say, oh, you know, he's not, he's clearly not as strong as he was. That's, that's not true. I mean, he's, yeah. he's close enough to win. I mean, he proved it physically. He can win a race at Daytona. So, um, yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, so. We, we just need to
3: do more work on the indoor, on the indoor setup, you know, the traditional Supercross mm-hmm. indoor, um, situation isn't. Isn't where we need it. So
1: um, you uh, you act as Eli's trainer, obviously with your background and and as agent as well. Um, no secret, Eli was the guy. To uh to go for last year, uh Honda, Cowie. Um, you know, I imagine you guys had preliminary talks with everybody. How overwhelming I mean you've done it in your own bicycling career, so you know you were you were the man uh in bicycling, whether it's downhill or 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 BMX or anything else. So you understand the process, but did it get a bit overwhelming at times, or did you get feel like you were just like, Okay, what are we gonna do here? Uh, everybody's no. calling you, everybody's you know?
3: No, I wasn't that bad. I mean Okay we had we had certain targets of you know like okay, we think mm-hmm. we think you can do well on this team or or on this particular motorcycle, okay, um, yep, you know you talked to everybody initially to see who's interested, and mm-hmm. luckily for Eli, everybody was interested, oh, I'm so sure you kind of have to go, <laughs> right. okay, now, what makes the most sense mm-hmm. you know um and where you wanna go and all that, so um, you know it doesn't take long to whittle it down to two or three players, yeah, um. And then at that point, it's really up to, really, it's up to the rider, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And um, we had long debates about this, you know, me and Eli. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I bet. um, And it got
1: heated, you know, a few times. (laughs) Um, Yeah. can you compare it to your own when you go from a 7-Eleven, the road bike team, to the Motorola team, or you switch mountain bike companies when you were the number one guy? Can you compare it all to that, or is it a different sport, different era, and nothing applies? No, it
3: was quite similar,
1: actually. Okay. Uh, yeah.
3: You know, I had deals that... I was, on a, I was on teams sometimes where I didn't like the bike. You know, like, I had a deal where my downhill bike wasn't competitive. Okay. So. But in mountain biking, at that point, it wasn't it wasn't as sophisticated as yeah. motorcycle racing is now. So, right. I actually had somebody build me a build me a whole new frame. You know, so <laughs> yeah, all you got to do is convince the company that's what you need to do, and they, you know, and they bought into it. So it wasn't that difficult. But you know, in, in mountain biking, it still is like that. It's like full works. So you can build whatever you want and run whatever you want. So sure, we're we're a little bit, um, you know. With the with the the uh, regulations we have in AMA, it's mm-hmm. you're kind of stuck with with what the manufacturers have as an OE product for the frame. So um, there are parameters w- in which, like a box in which you have to operate. Yeah, yeah. You know, with with KTM and the Austrian guys, you're operating within their steel frame chassis, and mm-hmm. you know, with Yamaha or. Honda or Kawasaki. There's certain characteristics to those motorcycles that you have to, you know, you kind of have to deal with yeah. with what those
1: parameters are. So no, absolutely. Um, you yourself, uh, you picked up moto. Um, were you always into moto, even when you were a kid, or when did you start getting on a dirt bike? And you're like, hey, uh, this is a uh, this is a a great form of training, and B, this is a lot of fun. Like, when did you get into moto? Um. It's funny when I
3: was a really little kid, I, I just was a fan, you know. Okay. Like I used yep. to watch um, Jimmy Weinert and you know Bob Hanna, and yep. all that back in the back in the early '80s or whenever it was, you yep. know. And, and then I I couldn't really do the sport as a kid. I just I just I just didn't have the resources to do it. Mm-hmm. So I ended up BMXing because it was pretty close and it's right. pretty sure. easy to do. So that's kind of how I got started on BMX. And then I was always kind of keeping an eye on moto just as a fan. And then um, later on in life, when I was like 19 or 20, uh, 18 or 19, I moved to California and, and then I met, you know, in mountain biking, I had a bit of crossover at that point and BMX with motocross a little bit.
1: So yeah, I met Johnny O back then and we used to train a little bit together. And Mike um, Bell, right? Bell was into it too.
3: I yeah. Think. yeah. And I got a bike back then, you know, from Johnny at one point and um, I rode just a little bit and I was, you know, I was a good DMXer and yeah, a good biker, but I was course. certainly not a dirt bike rider. It's just different. So, um, so I rode you're... a little bit in my mountain bike career. And then as I was more of a downhill guy at the end of my career, I actually rode a bit more because it transfers over pretty closely. Mm-hmm. And then um, the year after I retired was like 2001. I rode a lot of moto just because I was done bike racing. Yeah. I just wanted to do it. It was fun. And so I did that a lot. That's when Eli was on a 50. And Mm-hmm. we did Loretta's together and all that stuff. And that's kind of when he started to get
1: into moto.
3: I was riding with him a lot back then.
1: So really like you're talking, okay, obviously, yeah, when you were little, but when you moved to SoCal with Johnny O, this is the late eighties, right? Around there. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're 25 years old, 20 30 years old, maybe let's say. No, nah, um, at, that, at that point I was, you know, 19 or something. Oh, okay. All right. But you really were starting from sort of a beginner rider, um, and then you On want to, a motorcycle? Yeah, oh, on yeah, a motorcycle, sure. yeah. Yeah, like yeah. I'm just you're trying to figure out, and now you're out with Johnny O'Mara. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're like, hey, and he's probably looking at you going, oh, this guy. But you won all the Rattle title. Like, you really progressed yeah. fast, obviously. It's funny
3: because I was good friends with John Gregory. They got you still in CT yeah. Racing. Yep. And, you know, and he sponsored me as a mountain bike rider, and then he'd be like, oh, you need to go. He made me up this gear, and it was, it was funny. He'd make me all the cool stuff. He'd send me out riding with Brock. You know, we'd have to go ride in the hills, and then I'd go riding with Johnny. And it was just funny because I was really a beginner. and he'd, right. I would just go ride with these guys that were the top
1: guys. So yeah. It was pretty funny. And then you were like, hey, Osho, jump on a bicycle. Let me show you what's up. Let me show you. Yeah, but he was he was pretty good on a bicycle. Was he really? I mean, he was, huh? Like your level? Yeah. Like your level? No, I mean I was I was top pro guy, and
3: yeah. And when he was a pro motocross guy, Johnny O was a kind of a top level expert
1: mountain bike okay. guy, which is the next level down. Down. So. Right, but yeah, but pretty, that pretty respectable. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, pretty. He, he was really. I mean, he still is really strong. He. He, he just trained too much when he was motoring Was his
1: problem? Do you think? And we just had this debate on one of my shows a little while ago. I mean, uh, Jeff Spencer was around. I know him a little bit uh, from back in the day when he wrote for Chad and, and Red Dog. And obviously, O'Mara and Wardy are, are now unbelievably friends of mine, I would think. And I've talked to these guys. They, I mean, Wardy talked about doing triathlons on a Sunday after a moto or or, 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 or Omero's bicycling. Did these guys, looking back, I mean, and you were in with them, were they doing too much work yeah, for Moto? Sure. Okay, yeah,
3: yeah, no, no doubt about it. I bet Osho was doing fifty percent more hours than he should have been.
1: Are you fifty percent? You think? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we've, I mean, really, he was. We've really learned a lot about rest. I feel like in let's say the last decade, and I'm all about rest, JT. So, um, but uh, we've well, learned. A- I mean, the next generation was, you know. And MC and those guys, so um, yeah, they, they took it the I other mean, way. around, I guess. So, so you, yeah. So, in your opinion, like Omera and Wardy, they were just doing way more than what Eli does now, and what Eli needs to do, and, and that sort of stuff. Like that's what we always talked about. We're wondering if that crosses over.
3: Yeah, I just, I think they were. I, I really do. <laughs> I mean, I I know what what Eli does, mm-hmm. and. and and I know what he did going into like last summer and what he's done winning nationals and Yeah,
1: yeah. No, you know the level um, for sure.
3: It's just um you know when you sometimes you need to take a step back and really go, Okay, how long are these guys actually on the track for? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, supercross fifteen minutes. That's mm-hmm. not very long. Yeah. Minutes. Yeah. Motocross is thirty five minutes, that's that's barely an endurance sport on the motocross side, you know.
1: Yeah, when you look at the yeah, the grand scheme of things, road biking, mountain bike cross country yeah. races, right? Um
3: yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even consider it an endurance sport. It's like almost hybrid in a way. Yeah. You know, you're like like a 10k runner, I guess.
1: Yeah, cuz your heart rate, where well, your heart rate is, it's still demanding, but yeah, the time. Um so at some point Eli, you get him a 50 and he's racing and riding and he's enjoying it. And you're like, well, I guess my kid's not going to be a bicyclist. Uh, he's not going to follow Pops and be a world-class bicyclist. He's going to get into this motocrossing. And you're all in, I guess. You and Kathy are just all in from the start and being like, let's see how far our kid can go. Well, he,
3: you know, he, when he was little, like, I'm talking five years old, he, mm-hmm. was, he would skate in skate parks. Okay. And he would BMX. He'd he BMX, BMX race. And uh, he was actually... A, as a little dude, he was a really good skater and a, and a pretty good dirt jumper. Oh, okay. On a BMX bike. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was BMX racing, and then we took him to a motocross, like a little, pee wee, you know, fifty race. And
2: mm-hmm.
3: he seemed like he really liked it. So we just kind of kept going to the local races, and then the next year we'd go to the bigger races, and he's just started doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately, you know, when he was like. Well, his six-year-old year, he was like 30th, 25th or something at Loretta's. And okay. then his seven-year-old year at Loretta's, I think he was – I think he almost won that year. But okay. he, he made a big jump. Like he was yep. 20th to competing for the win. Mm-hmm. So,
1: And then Suzuki comes calling or, or whoever back then.
3: Yeah, and then we, yeah. we got hooked up with Suzuki on 60s, you know, and then um, he just progressed every year. You know, by the time he was on – by the time he was eight – he was already like top national level.
1: Mm-hmm. So. And you're and you're all in. You're like, all right, we're taking this as well, far as Yeah. I,
3: I guess, you know. At that point they're so young, you're just like, Okay, let's do this. <laughs> right, right. You know? Yep. You know, when they're when they're twelve years old on the eighty, you gotta start looking ahead, you know, going, Okay, this guy's really 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 good and you know, that's when you go, Okay, let's maybe make some sacrifices to get him mm-hmm. to the you know, to where he needs to be when he's 16 or 17 or whatever
1: yeah yeah and and so did you the success he's had national title supercross titles and wins and and and, you know like i said one of the very best in the sport today i mean this is this unbelievable to you or you know again as a guy that's you know himself a very elite athlete is this something you saw six seven eight years old where you're like or maybe a little bit later like we talked about say 12 where you're like hey like no i just
3: the funny thing is is if you're if you kind of went down the path I went to, mm-hmm. yeah. through, you know, I came from, you know, central Michigan. Right. Owasso. Guy rides yeah. BMX bikes in the field to to the world champion mountain bike guy. So uh-huh. nobody's going to tell me you can't do something if you don't want it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, my approach was, hey, if he wants to do this and he shows some potential, he can take it as far as he wants to, you mm-hmm. know? And I, I felt like I kind of had a, kind of a blueprint to get him there, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I I would agree. I think he has a, he had a nice... I mean, I feel
3: like I could, honestly, I could, I could
1: snap six and seven-year-olds and probably do the same thing again. (laughs) Oh, I said it's another career. I said it's a career path. No, I don't, I'm not saying I want to do that, but I'm saying if you... Yeah. It's possible, Yeah, you know? Huh. It's possible. Interesting. But I mean,
3: then you got to, you still got guys that have to want to do it and... Oh yeah, but, I mean, the, the, I, mean I, I believe that you can you can build the the skill.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, what do you see in our sport now? And again, as a guy that's come from world class bicycling background, we. We take our racing pretty seriously. There's a lot of fractured sons and, and dads, and sons and parents, relationships out there. Some of them get back together. Uh, I'm thinking RV or Jake Weimer. Some of them don't. Uh, Tony Alessi's a constant presence in Mike's career for, for, for way too long, some would say. Some would say that Mike needs him. Um, we're, we're a sport that kind of chews up family relationships, and I've always thought that you and maybe there's things going on behind the scenes, John that we don't know, like big massive fights, but you guys the tomac seem like you guys have it together uh you're at all the races together um what's the secret and what's what's this what's the your thoughts on sort of how we do this with our amateur careers and parents and everything else
3: it's it's really hard i'll t- I'll tell you that
1: it's yeah
3: super super challenging so um and and it's it's just not easy you know it just takes a lot to get to that level so and then once you're there it's um again it's hard to it's it's a blurred line you know sure. in, in a lot of ways uh-huh. it's it's that's something that's really kind of difficult for me to sometimes try to figure out how i fit into the whole
2: team mm-hmm.
3: structure you know like should I say something about the motorcycle? Should I not say anything about the motorcycle? It's, mm-hmm. um, that's where it, it gets the hardest, at least for me personally. Yeah. You know, and then and then trying to. The other challenge I have is being with Eli. Is that I've been with him so much for so long. Mm-hmm. You know, um, sometimes it's just it's just too much. I think you know. That's why, a lot of times I just. You know, I I don't necessarily go into the gym with him anymore, and sometimes I skip a lot of the bike rides. And um, here and there, I try to miss things, you know, on purpose, actually, to
1: yeah, yeah,
3: give him some breathing space, you know. So
1: yeah, it's a touch. Nobody knows Eli better than you and Kathy, and. And so there's that part that's great, but then on the other time, there's a part where this kid's got to make mistakes on his own, uh, deal with this team on his own, and these types of things. So I can imagine, exactly. you know, I yeah. can totally imagine. Yeah. And, and we have many parents who step overboard, many parents in our sport. Um, you know, and I've been on teams with, with parents where you're just like, wow, this, this dad is out of hand, and, and you know, uh, but I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a touchy subject, like you said.
3: Yeah, and it's hard even for, I think, for the teams to kind of mm-hmm. manage it in a way. You know, I tell our guys, I'm like, hey, if you don't like my idea, just tell me. I don't care. <laughs> you know, it might hurt my feelings for a little while, but right. You know, it's your team. It's your motorcycle. You're spending the money, you know. Um, all I'm doing is trying to help us succeed, you know. so
1: Yeah, um, now, forgive me for not knowing this. But was your dad around in your bicycling BMX in your early BMXing, and when you went no mountain biking hardly or?
3: at all? Okay, yeah, he was just you know he was a um, kind of a blue collar union electrician dude in Michigan. So okay, so you really I hardly ever yeah. ever saw him, you know, at the especially at the races. So I, I had a few friends that helped me out, and I pretty much did everything on my own.
1: Yeah. So, so again, you you coming from a different port. Your self-made guy a little bit in everything that, that you yeah, yeah, way
3: different. You know, uh, mm-hmm. that's one of the things when I when when I started. You know, actually, when I had Eli, I'm like, I'm going to spend some time with my kids when they're young. You know, and I was able to do that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't get that. With, I didn't get that with my dad. So
1: right, right. Um, the trainers in our sport today. Now, again, I'm I'm just a guy on the media side. I was a mechanic for a long time and been in certainly been in with riders uh, week in and week out and. And, you know, we talk about Jeff Spencer, and I saw some crazy things and heard some crazy theories from Jeff. And and I've I've seen other uh, trainers do this and that, and there's pills and there's potions and, and, and chiropractors that seem to be overstepping their bounds. It's a wild west of trainers in our sport. It's young kids, easily influenced with a lot of money and some people that want to get their hooks in on it. Do you agree with this? Am I just being too pessimistic or are there things in our sport No. Okay. That's pretty close.
3: That's pretty close, you know. Yeah. There's some, there's some marginal characters out there. <laughs> <laughs> I I think so too. I think there's some people the that over The problem is, is yeah. these guys, you know, these guys are so young. They're so young. They're high school kids. Right. You know? Yeah. Um and you know, they're really they're not in a position to, you know, a lot of times to make these choices that are, that they have to make, like they shouldn't have to mm-hmm. deal with that. If you, if you think about traditional stick and ball sports, you know, you're, you're a high school athlete. Um, you know, you're, you're in that high school system. It's, it's pretty, pretty well monitored and watched, you know, mm-hmm. and even at the collegiate level, it's sure. Again, it's pretty well structured, monitored yeah. and watched and structured and, and, um, but in our sport, it's you know in motocross anyway. I don't know that motocross is my sport, but um, it's um, it's definitely a lot, a lot wilder, like you said. And, and you have to be careful, you know, you, especially especially the kids. You know, I, I feel I feel for those guys a lot of times. You know, they get they get overtrained or or they get told this and that. Um, and it just doesn't
1: doesn't work out for them. Are you more of a and i th- I would think you are I don't know you that well, but I mean there is no magic magic workout there's just miles on a bike and and heart rate and distance, and that's what gets you in shape and to skip corners with potions and and different exercises and everything else uh, it's i mean even I even think some of the some of the distances these guys are putting on on road bikes are insane. Again, look at me. I'm not exactly an elite athlete, so I could be just talking out my ass. But we're, you know, we're riding the motorcycle. That's what we're, we're trying to be successful at. And some of the things, I just, I don't know. I just, doesn't, it, doesn't it just boil down to just doing some specialized work and, and working hard and, and, and riding your motorcycle? Yeah, that's my take <laughs> on it. Okay. honestly. All right. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I just, I can't believe some of the miles these guys put in and some of the things I hear that they're doing for, for cross training and, and things like that. I'm just like, you just... no, you can, I mean, you can do that a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and, and
3: I kind of ran into this a little bit working with Zach last year where he did a crap load of work in the spring, you know, during mm-hmm. his break. And, and I'm like, w- why did you do that? You know? <laughs> you know, and, and right in middle of july you know all of a sudden you had trouble and, yeah and, but i don't know you know
1: yeah i mean everybody's, everybody's different everybody has
3: to do what they think is best but
1: yeah it's uh i just I, I yeah again like riding the motorcycle seems to be the most important thing you can do for 35 minutes at a time 40 minutes at a time until you're almost out of gas and then you know try to do that and maintain your consistent lap levels and put some road biking slash mountain biking in and uh call it a day rest make sure you rest so
3: I don't know. But yeah. I mean, I think back in the day guys, there was guys that overtrained, and there was guys that didn't train. And mm-hmm. then, you know, there's a, there's a balance that you need to have. And, yeah. Um, it's still a dirt, you know, it's still a dirt bike race. And mm-hmm. if Dogger was 21, he'd probably still get a podium.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. There's that too. Right. There's those guys that, that J-law Dogger. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. um, you could they can ride a motorcycle really well they're not doing anything else and that and then they can win races doing that so
3: that just shows you you know Mm -hmm. you you need to train but maybe maybe you don't need to do 500 miles on your road bike
1: would you ever think about opening up I've, i've seen photos of your place it looks phenomenal um Obviously, like we talked about, Zach Osborne went there last year, and I wrote it a few times about how I think the Tomacs were killing him. Um, he didn't like when I wrote that, by the way. But um, uh, he, he would you ever open up your place to, to riders and, you know, make a little facility and, and you know, try to, you know, help guys? Is that, Has he ever thought of that? Um, the, you know, I've thought of it, but I wouldn't do it on a grand scale.
3: So yeah, okay. I would do I would maybe do a couple pro guys. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I like working with little guys too. I have occasional um, sixty-five or eighty-five guys, you know, come out for a day or two, or I have a local guy that comes out once in a while. So, yeah, that's pretty fun too because when you tell those guys something and then they listen,
2: uh-huh.
3: it's amazing. It's amazing <laughs> what they. I mean, you can you can work with an eighty-five guy and put three seconds out of his lap time in a you know, half a day.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it makes yeah. You feel good. Yeah, sure. Why not? Right. Um. Let's get in back into into your career a little bit. So your you started in BMX. You're from Michigan, like you said. You started in BMX. This is Pistol Pete days in the mid '80s. This is when you're right riding, yeah. right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, yep. Um, was there any how, was there any money in it? Obviously, uh, you you won pretty good. You did pretty good. You rode for mongoose. Um, was there any real money in it back then? Or I remember getting BMX action magazines and seeing your name and and all that. But was there any, actually any? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was. All, I
3: mean, it was. If you were the top guy back then, you'd make. Well, this is eighty-five. Yeah. Okay, so um, you'd make like sixty grand or
1: something. Oh, ah, okay. A year, yeah, And you not bad. You're twenty years old I or whatever, was, right? Yeah. You're... I didn't do that.
3: I mean, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Okay. I, I was the top expert guy, and then I turned pro. And then, Mongoose actually, um, the year I turned pro, they they cut back a little bit, and they had Eric Rook, who was the top guy at that time. Okay. He was like the number one guy. So. Yep. Um. Yeah. I didn't have a ride there, so I kind of privateered it and actually did all right. And then um, then I decided to go to school and started mountain biking at the same time. So, Who um, who showed I you? Went, m- uh, I, I kind of, you know, got into mountain biking then and, and, yeah. and, and kind of transferred over into that sport. And then Mongoose helped me out right away in that sport. And that's kind of where my mountain biking thing took off.
1: Who first showed you a mountain bike? I remember when I first saw him as a kid, I'm like, ah, look at those stupid bikes. Like, what are those things for? Um, who first showed you a mountain bike, and what, what made you take to it right away? Um, I uh, I had a – my
3: brother-in-law was Robbie Roop, who was oh. Eric Rupp's brother. So they were BMX pro guys. Okay, yeah. But they, they had a mountain bike, or at least Robbie was kind of into it. And then we had another friend, uh, Byron Friday, who was out in Southern Cal – um, and he was a mountain bike guy out there, so he kind of got me into the sport. And then, and uh, Mongoose had a had an early kind of early mountain bike that they had produced, so I started riding that. Okay. And they kind of showed me the ropes. And then there was a kind of a pretty cool little local, you know, mountain bike scene in Southern Cal at that time mm-hmm. that I got into. But I, I, my mountain biking exposure uh, when I started riding. In '85, kind of started then, really riding mountain bikes. By by the end of '86, I was like a top national guy. Like, like I went through the ranks really, really, really
1: fast. It just took me that
3: long to get fit. It took me like a year to really get fit.
1: Okay, so you weren't you weren't that fit then, coming from BMXing, really. You, I mean, you obviously were no, fit, a, but I you mean, weren't. I
3: was a strong, strong BMX guy. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But but doing that and then going and racing it two, three-hour mountain bike cross-country races. <laughs>
2: That's
3: a whole nother world. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so it took you, like you said, like a year, and then all of a sudden um, now you're winning cross-country races. Um, the early downhill races, I saw a photo of you. You still had your drop-down bars, and you would do the downhill on the mountain bike? Like, Yeah, that was 90. What was, what was up with that?
3: 90? I was racing on the road as a pro. That definitely.
1: okay. So oh, so you were just a around. road. Okay, yeah. So you were a roadie, and you were you just liked the way the, the felt on a downhill. Well, I was a mountain bike. Well, first I was BMX, and then I was a mountain
3: biker. And then I, when I was first started mountain biking, I would ride the roads for training. Okay. Um, but I was immediately pretty good at mountain biking, and then I kind of did the same thing on the road. Like I started riding the road in like '87 and started racing. And '88, I won a national title on the road. So like at the top level in the U S so that again, that was a really rapid rise for me. So, um, Mm -hmm. and I was mountain biking at the same time. So I was kind of doing both sports. Yeah. Um, so in 90, I just, I was a pro on the road in Europe racing over there, but I was still doing world cup mountain bikes. Races and national mountain bike races. So I, my idea with riding the drop bars was my equipment was kind of the same, pretty much the same, that's, no that's, matter what I was doing.
1: Yeah, that's kind of kind of insane, by the way, going downhill like that. But you're obviously pretty it's good. was a at wild it. ride, but you know it was, <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Or maybe you just need some revalving on the machine to, uh, help you, uh, take first place in the Chicken Licks Raceway. Something, something, uh, on your bike needs attention for Race Tech. I guarantee you. Freeze, Gilmore, some of the guys just using, uh, Race Tech Privateer Proven. They work with, uh, Ben LeMay also. They're back with Ben LeMay. And, uh, they offer a full line of Race Tech high performance springs. These springs are called high performance because they're extremely lightweight for their rates and feature the tightest tolerances in the industry. You want to save 10%? at uh, Tech, Go to Pulp MX 2015 when you order. You can save 10% at Racetech.com and they're uh, proud sponsors of this podcast and we thank you guys. All right. Back to the show. <music> tires are back, people. MichelinMotorcycle.com, Michelin StarCross 5, brand new, available in hard, medium, soft, and sand. Uh, their off-road tires are some of the best ones out there, and they've revamped this whole lineup. There's no one who knows these tires better than our own, Chris Kiefer. When they're calling it comfort casing technology, what are they talking about? Is this a fancy marketing term or what?
0: No, it's actually the carcass of the tire itself, so how much it flexes or how you know sidewall stiffness that you have when you come into corners. And what's cool about this tire is even from the previous version of the MH3, it gives more. So when you hit square edge or you're coming out of a corner with some bumps, it has some give to it. It's more comfort. So it doesn't feel so rigid. A lot of that has to do with the, the CCT.
1: So you're telling me the comfort casing at the end of the day, maybe it helps you a little bit to have some suspension in tires.
0: Yeah, obviously it's flexing a little bit, but also too, when you come into corners, you don't want it to roll on you. So they've got that dialed in to where you come into a corner and you still have enough stiffness where it grabs and bites, but yet straight line, you have comfort.
1: Hey, as a former factory mechanic, Kiefer, I know all about mounting tires. Um, So no problem for me to mount anything. Well, maybe not a moose. You found mounting these new Michelins uh, pretty easy, actually.
0: Yeah, I'm a great test rider, but my mechanic skills are novice at best. So mounting the tire wasn't too bad. They sent me a bunch of tires to mount before testing and I was out there busting in the garage. And normally you got to put some tires in the sun, let them soften up a little bit. But this, um, the bead rolls on really nice. I didn't have to struggle. No curse words were were sworn in the garage. So uh, it was a lot better for me, you know, putting these on. Four
1: versions of this tire they cover all the uses key for reduced weight comfort casing technology mounting traction handling they do it all starcross 5 michelinmotorcycle.com thank those guys check them out at the local dealer people these guys know tires and they know what they're doing what did you like like obviously the road biking like you said you so you got into road biking to train for mountain biking and now you're all of a sudden you're one of the best road bikers in America was it just Almost like a guy, like you couldn't settle for one discipline, like whether it was... Yeah, actually, I got to where
3: I was really pretty dominant on the mountain bike. Okay. I'd get beat occasionally, but I was winning a lot. Yeah. And uh, road cycling was just kind of more challenging, especially the European pro stuff. Sure, yeah. I just thought of it as another challenge.
1: So and you, everyone was like, John, just pick a, pick a, pick a bike discipline that you like. Well, it, it, got, <laughs>
3: it got to that two years later. I had to pick, okay, you know, one or, one or the other, but at that point I was what? 22 or something. So I was 22, 20, I was 22 at that point. So, so when you, I was still trying to figure out what I really wanted to do.
1: Yeah. What was more money? The road biking, I'm guessing in Europe, right? The Europe European road biking circuit was probably the, the most prestigious and paying the most.
3: If you were the man, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is if Greg Lamont, right? I was was by no means the man on the road in Europe. So, yeah. And I was the man in mountain biking. So, you know, I did two years on the road. And then after that, you know, I, I was world champ that same year on my second year on the road. I was world champ on a mountain bike. So, and mountain biking kind of started booming. And it just ended up to be a much better deal for me financially to do mountain biking. And mountain biking was kind of more my style. And, yeah. Um, and road cycling was, um, it's just not that that it's not healthy right now. But it, I mean, even back then, it was not really a healthy sport. So. <laughs> healthy being like healthy for your body.
1: Yeah, you told me one time um, that some of the guys that you were beating in downhill and cross country starts started beating you a little bit. The more PEDs were coming into that sport, and then sort of you go to the road biking, and all of a sudden, it's kind of coming on in there in the early nineties. You're noticing guys that you used to be able to handle, start getting a lot better real quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you
3: can see it. You know, it took me probably a year or a year and a half to figure that out on the road. You know, because <laughs> right. when you go over to Europe, you're, you know, you're pretty green. and Sure, yeah. Um, but after a while, you're just like, all right, this is just not normal, you know? hmm So... um and then that's kind of why I, I, that was one of the reasons I walked away from road riding and went back to mountain biking because mountain biking was, you know, at that point at least it was a lot cleaner and uh-huh. and um, the sport was still kind of infant mm-hmm. and pure, you know, yeah. Not, yeah. not really yeah. super developed and it was just it was just a lot different scene, you know, way different
1: scene, right? So and and the two also um, so when you when you become the best road biker in America um someone from euro uh the 711 team i imagine or, or they say hey come to belgium and, and do these uh, do these tours and is that kind of you're just like all right cool and then are you going back to america to all the time to do the, the the mountain biking still
3: yeah yeah well it was 711 was it a uh an american based yep european basically we okay. were a euro european pro team so um but it was American-owned and American-based. But we had a, you know, we had a, an operational hub out of Belgium. So okay, I lived in I lived in Belgium and and for a better part of the year, and um, I would travel back to the U.S. to do the U.S. national mountain bike stuff, um, and then I would travel a World Cup mountain bike circuit. So oh, geez. and then I would okay. do the road racing. You know, filled my whole calendar with road races. Also, so I probably did 120. Races Jeez in
1: 1990 we we had a marty smith one time did the gps and the u.s nationals like in 78 or something and phenomenal feat he he got he didn't win either title but just amazing going back and forth and competing on two continents i you're, you're kind of doing the same uh, thing yeah.
3: yeah I was crazy. i was crazy back then yeah. <laughs> one oh. time i raced on saturday in durango i did the durango to silverton road race which is a cycling race okay. over these two mountain passes yep and then i uh that race is in the morning. I did that one in the morning. I flew to Pittsburgh and did another big pro road race on Sunday. It was like a 150-mile race, circuit race. And then I flew home that night and raced the Mountain Bike National on the Monday because it was Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. I did all three of those.
1: Wow. <laughs> you just couldn't, couldn't get enough, I guess. I can imagine your, your your VO2 max and your heart rates and everything else back then. Probably just like insane amount of training. Just, just... Yeah, it's different. You know, it's in cycling. A lot of times, it's okay to be tired. It's just
3: like it's just the way it is. Yeah, um, yeah. it's a lot different. You know, and it depends on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you'll just completely wreck yourself because in three or four weeks, you're going to recover and you're going to have really good racing form. Yeah, um, you can't do that in motocross. You know, motocross and supercross. When you do a thirty week schedule you're not going to have like these big peaks you know yeah, and it's yeah. like you would, like a lot of endurance L-
1: athletes like have, the cycling so. guys do yeah where they they plan it and everything else and they want to peak exactly yeah, yeah it's just different yeah um yeah. did you know greg lamont at all when you went over there was he done by then
3: yeah yeah no he was there okay he was racing yeah so yeah, he... i got to race with him he was he was one of my you know superhero dudes he was awesome
1: so yeah and then uh, also too, you you knew Lance Armstrong a little bit, right, on the Motorola stuff? Uh, or... Not really. Okay. I mean, I never. I might have raced with him once or twice when he was younger. Okay. Possibly,
3: but I. Yep. Uh, the year, the year I stopped on Motorola, the next year he came on the team. So oh, okay. All right. I thought you got across A map. lot of times, yeah. when, when he was a top amateur guy, like when you're a top amateur guy domestically in the U.S. Yeah. as a road cyclist, you're on the
1: national you, team. You're on a map. Yeah, yeah.
3: When he was on the national team, I was already off of it and being a pro. So okay, um, we wow. never really—I mean and then he he did a few mountain bike races. Yep, um, during his road cycling career, but
1: um, I didn't get too friendly with him. Right, right. Um, uh, I kind of I kind of had him figured out before. Well, I was going to say like without get yeah without getting too much into it, none of what happened to him surprised you. No, not at all. Right. Nope. Y- yeah. Like you know, all those years of saying. I'm clean. I'm clean. I'm clean. I'm passing all the tests too, as well, or not all of them, but you know, whatever. We know all the history by now. Not a surprise to you, so.
2: No,
3: and it's it's you know not a surprise, and um, you can only imagine some of the
1: debates I had over dinner with friends. You know, <laughs> well, who thought he walked on water? Oh, I believe me. I was a, I was a mechanic when he was winning in two thousand one, two, three, and I'm like. I was like, there's no way he's not cheating because everyone else was. And his records, he's smashing these records. And people used to get so mad, John, that you would question Lance. And I just it just it was a fall from grace that I think a, a lot of people kind of knew what was coming, you know. And Greg was one of them. Greg LeMond was one of them. Yeah, I mean, if you race over there, you you know what's going on,
3: you know. Mm-hmm. So um, if anybody's got time over there in the saddle, they, you know.
1: Yep. You know, they they know what's going on. So This is uh, probably a hard question for you to answer, but out of all these races you've done and won and done well in, what's the hardest one, John, for you? Like, what is one that taxes you, taxed you the most in all these years? Was there an event or two that stood out where you were just like, I don't ever want to do that ever again?
3: No, it's not that you don't want to do it ever again. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the The long stage races, like the time I did the giro um mm-hmm. those those two three week stage races, yep uh, the amount of fatigue you have is incredible, so um, that's really hard, it's hard to explain It's hard to explain to somebody that yeah, you've done so much cardio work that your heart is fatigued, like it's tired, like your leg muscle gets tired, your heart is that tired. <laughs> That is hard to understand. And then you got to wake up and do ten more stages, like ten more
1: days in a row. Yeah, yeah, no doubt that it's full of PEDs at some point. That's right? why I say it's, it's not yeah. healthy. Yeah, like your body cannot do it. Um, no, you're, that's what—that's the problem with that sport. Is it's so hard. Mm-hmm.
3: You know, and it's been so hard for so long. I think that's how the whole PED thing gets filtered in. I mean, it's going to probably be there. Any. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you played tiddlywink, somebody would probably tried to cheat.
1: But, yeah, yeah, no, um,
3: there, there is that. It's that physically hard, um, it, it tends to, I think, maybe bring that stuff in a little more. It's like the NFL in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so gnarly. Like, how are you going to be a running back if the linebacker's three hundred pounds and he's going to hit you? You know, it's <laughs> like.
1: Yeah, and if you look at the average... There's a no
3: reason all those guys are getting concussions. It's because they're running twice as fast as they used to, and
1: they're twice as big as they used to be. Yeah, just look at the average heights and weights of these athletes over the years, right? Um, yeah, yeah. There's got to be a breaking point here, and maybe we've reached it in helmet technology. Uh, in talks to about the NFL and hockey, and something I follow is hockey, and maybe we've reached a limit where, you know, guys are too big too fast, and and it's just not going well. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the helmet... Can and will get better. It just needs to. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, did you do the Tour de to France?
3: No, no, I did two years over there on the road. I did, did the, the Euro Italy. And yeah, Euro. Yeah, um, I was twenty-two and twenty-two. You don't normally do the tour really until you're twenty-five, usually. That goes back to how hard it is. Yeah, so. to like you're not, you're not
1: ready type deal.
3: Yeah, it's funny um, because, you know, it's funny when you come from cycling,
1: mm-hmm. you know which.
3: You're not even really considered much of an athlete until you're at least twenty one.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah. And in, and in Moto, it's like if you're not throwing down when you're sixteen, you you're, know You're done. You're, yeah. You're done when you're twenty five. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. Is, it, it, you know, and that kinda helped me hold I held back like quite a bit in the younger days. Like we weren't super
1: mm-hmm. hardcore. Well so like McGrath McGrath was on our show a few weeks ago, um, and he his theory was he thinks you have 10 years in moto uh, of 100% all-out, balls-out, 10 years. Uh, we, saw yep. R- we saw RC and RV pack it in early. Um, we've seen Millsaps and Alessi. Uh, certainly they've had good careers. There's nothing wrong with them. They've made lots of money. They've never won anything. That's to speak of. And they've, they, they started when they were 14, Wide open, and, yeah. and now they're kind of done. And honestly, like mm-hmm. MC had something. I think. I think he had something there where you have ten years of all out. And no, I totally agree with him, and I feel
3: the same way. Like, mm-hmm. and that's kind of why I like held I didn't him. go real hard with Eli until he was, you know, until that year he started as a pro, which he was seventeen. So yeah, yeah. Now um, you're like, okay, so now we'll go. And I did it. You know, I did it myself. I went really hard from about. 86 through 96, mm-hmm. you know, and when I because I stopped cross country racing after 96, I was like I'm I'm done I can't do it anymore. Yeah, so I'm just too <laughs> worn out, too tired <laughs> of doing those you know uh-huh. 20 30 hour weeks. So yeah, um, my last four years I did just downhill and it was just different style of training. You know, more power work, less time in the saddle, just totally
1: different. Yeah, what kind of preparation is so, downhill like? I've watched it on TV and I've seen it. Obviously, um, it, it. I guess it's, it's not really cardio. It, how scary is it? I guess it's a different skill set from almost anything else that you were, did, you were doing. Right? Yeah. Well, it's the races are normally two and a half
3: to five minutes. Yeah. Back when I raced, they were a little bit longer. They tended to be. A oh, they were longer. okay. Yeah. But not that. But I mean, that being said, we had some races that were you know, twelve, thirteen minutes. That yeah. was rare. Normally they were six, six okay. four to six minutes. So um but yeah it's 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 wide open, like max heart rate. So Um It's cardio for sure, but it's just like it's so short that um you don't have to have a massive VO two, but you still have to be fit. Right. Um the highest heart rate I ever recorded was on a downhill race. Oh really? But, oh wow okay yeah. yeah. I hit like a 202, but I would hit like 200, 198, a lot on my downhill runs.
1: It's so a little bit more like race. moto, a little bit more like moto, high heart rate and intense.
3: Yeah. I mean, it would be, it would be closer to super cross, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like a downhill would be pretty equivalent to doing a heat race, I guess. Sure. You'd say.
1: Um,
3: um, What, what came, you know, what, downhill mountain biking is close to moto. It's, yeah. Um, it's pretty close. Like the, the bike feels pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Um, what you do on the bike is pretty similar. Chassis is pretty close. You know, you don't have the engine, you don't have the dynamic of the crank weight and engine braking and, and that, but the fundamentals of chassis setup and suspension are pretty darn close.
1: Right. Um, I'm guessing road biking came hardest to you. Uh, I would think, it seems like, um, from what you've been saying. What came easiest to you, whether it's BMX, whether it's downhill, cross-country? What were you surprisingly really good at right away? Um, well, the easiest for me is probably shorter cross-country um,
3: mountain bike events. You know? Okay, yep. Just because it kind of was right in my wheelhouse. Because I, I I wasn't, like, if you look at a cross-country mountain bike guy, they tend to be kind of, a little bit skinnier and lankier. Yeah, um, I was a little bit bigger, so I made more power, but I didn't necessarily always climb the most efficiently. You know, if you're going up a real long climb. So right. If it was a technical, you know, a technically demanding course that had a little shorter climbs on it, that was, you know, mm-hmm. kind of right in my wheelhouse per se.
1: How much? How much? When it comes to cross country mountain biking, and me being a former mechanic, this is kind of interesting to me. Um, you talked a little bit about the downhill bike setup. Uh, but how much setup on a bike is there in cross country mountain biking? Um, you know, that's just um, fitting it to your okay to what works for you. Because um, you said you're a little bit bigger guy, so you had to set things up. Well, like yeah, little, yeah, there
3: were certain components that I had to use, and I or I, you know, I would avoid maybe super lightweight stuff that wasn't rigid enough. Okay. You know? Yep. Um, cross country, you're setting up basically your your tire pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a suspension fork, which pretty much everybody does. You yeah. set that up, to, you know, to work for you. Um, you're gearing a little bit. Um, that's about it. Okay. Really yeah. on, on setup. So, I mean, there's there's definitely you know like the construction of the frame. You know what certain characters you might
1: characteristics you might like. You know how much flex you want in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would think so. That was all. Like you said, you can do anything in mountain biking, so you can tune all that for your. How hard you hammer, how much you weigh, all that kind of riding style, right? Yeah, you have to select your tires too. Um, yep. And then you know, gearing a little bit.
3: It's definitely not as detailed as, as moto downhill is. Downhill is it's, pretty detailed if yep. you want to make it that yeah. way. I mean, we built in '97. I started Tomac Bikes, and we built our own bikes ground up. So. um, you know, we really studied those things.
1: Did you cross paths with Palmer, or was he after you?
3: No, yeah, a lot. I raced him okay. in 90, <laughs> 97,
1: I think. Me and, him, me and him had a huge duel in the National Series. So you're the vet, um, and he's the he's the hard-drinking, hard-living uh, J-Law of the time. Yeah, he was J-Law, and I was done. <laughs> I ended up beating him yeah. you know, by
3: a couple points. The uh, so, yeah, the vet. But so we were actually—it was funny because we were way different, but we were actually pretty good friends.
1: Oh, you were okay. Yeah. 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 Um, he's a unique guy. I've met him a few times, and he's still a unique yeah. guy, Sean Palmer. Um, uh, it, yeah. Starting at Tomac Bikes. How did that happen? What did? It, how did that come about? Uh, you sold it, I guess. I understand from what I what I read about, but you still have some input into things and all that. How did it? How did it start? Uh, I was riding for a
3: company called Giant, which they're still a big bike yep. producer. Yep. it's a Taiwanese-based company, and um, I, I knew I had a couple more years left in me racing. And again, it, it was they offered me a contract, and it was a bit of a pay cut. And I was like, "Well, I could take that, and, you know, finish racing with them, or mm-hmm. yep. if I want to do anything in the industry for myself, you know, I can." I can go for it now and and be able to use my racing to promote it. So, Mm -hmm. um, stand it up, you know, going that route. So, and, and so, yeah. It was fun. It was an experience. You know, I, I started it with Doug Bradbury. He was the, the, um, founder of Manitou Suspension.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Manitou. I had, I'd have said a four. He
3: was a man. He was, um, kind of a suspension oriented guy, kind of an old moto guy, too. Mm -hmm. So, um, our whole deal at that point was full suspension mountain biking because, really, the rear suspension was not that well developed at that point. Okay. And then downhill was like the spearhead of all bike development. Really, yeah. so that was that was pretty fun.
1: So um, when you sold it, did you make some money off of it. Did it was it no, financially? I mean, I well, or I didn't
3: sell it. I I licensed trademarks. Oh, okay.
1: Yep.
2: Um,
3: I licensed it with a company, and then. Um, got it back,
1: and then licensed it two more times, and I just got it back again. So it's uh, kind of it goes through different morphs. Goes through so. phases. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this, though, something that I've talked to RJ about. RJ had a chance to invest with Jim Gennard back in the day from Oakley and yep. and never did and still still regrets it to this day. Did you ever have a chance to give Jim Gennard some money? Because you were one of the first guys, Lamond, you – Wearing Oakley is what I remember as a kid. Yeah, yeah.
3: No, I didn't have that chance, but it's funny because I was with those guys back in, like, 85, 86. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they were with me my whole career, which is pretty awesome. And then yeah, it's kind of the same way with Bell Helmets. I was with them forever. So.
1: And now you're back with them. Yeah, with, with Eli. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to have Eli and, you know, have relationships
1: with some of these people, you know, like sure. second generation. Uh, deals. So You called Gregory up, see if he wants to make some gear, see if he could fire up the sewing machine again. <laughs> nah, he's too busy flying the Super Cubs. So. I know. I Actually, I did a podcast with him uh, oh, three, four years ago. I reached out to him out of the blue. Um, and a great guy, really interesting story about JT and shutting it down and selling it and, and you know why he got out of it. And uh, really nice guy. Uh, unfortunately, he told me he was going to send me some JT stuff that he still had in a bunker. Never has, though. But uh, really nice guy. Great, great, interesting guy. Yeah,
3: he's, he still comes to the races. He looks me up every time he's there. So. Oh, does he?
1: If he ever does, text, yeah. text me to come meet me. I know he still remembers the show we did. He loved it. He said yeah, he got a lot of response. Yeah, in
3: San Diego, or occasional Vegas okay.
1: show up. Yeah, uh, seemed like a really interesting guy. But, yeah, so, R.J., RJ passed on Jim Jannard wanting, like, five or ten grand for grips, you know, back in the day, and um, yep. and um still regrets it. <laughs> he could, could, have been, could have been a bajillionaire. So um, Well, yeah, it'd be like buying
3: monster stock about ten years ago.
1: Yeah, and I remember, like I said, you were one of the first guys, you and LeMond, running Oakley's, you know, so forever. Um Is there anything that you think, uh as far as our sport goes, motorsport coming in from your background uh, into our sport now, is there anything like that you're surprised that we don't do more of training-wise or sport-wise? Um, obviously, you know, we, you and I have had some conversations over the years uh, about PEDs, and, and we got WADA testing, we got USADA testing, and um, its I think it, it's good, it's a good thing. But is there anything like either that lines or anything else that you think that you're like, you want to shake your head a little bit and go like, why aren't we doing this? And I don't mean even PED-wise, I just mean anything.
3: Um. Well, I mean, the the testing thing is still – it's not nearly at a level where it
1: should be. Um, PED testing, you
3: mean? Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah.
3: Like, I haven't seen a test this year in Supercross, so. They just had
1: one uh, at uh, whatever yeah. – we just wore Indy.
3: Yeah, that's the first one I've heard of. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you really want to do it right, you have to – I mean, it has to be,
1: like, a lot more often. Yeah. It would help. There's one guy they pick off season, right? Uh, out of out of competition. There's one guy, uh, I think a year, and that probably could be yeah. more, right?
3: Yeah, I don't know if there was one or two. I, I thought I heard there was more than oh, okay, than one. But, yeah, but it, that that helps. I mean, just having something helps for sure. Yep. But and just, I mean, on that side, the being educated about that stuff would 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 help. You know, I feel like the young riders should be um, educated about those things mm. Um, mm. as they turn pro like it should be something that the AMA does as 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 you get your license you should have to go to a uh, I feel like you should go to a seminar and go okay you're turning pro um, you you need to know about this stuff yeah you, you guys are going to make decisions and, and it's going to affect your you know possibly the rest of your life so um, um people need to be up to speed on that stuff now, as far as what they can do and what they can't do and especially just I mean you can get popped for taking a cold medicine you, you yeah. need to know about that
1: stuff yeah absolutely I, I, how about a, a little bit of a media relations uh seminar uh, on my end of that things That how about yeah. um how about like if parents aren't involved like yourself um and, and other parents um these tem- some of these teams sign these kids and not so much now but you know oh four they hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollar 200,000 contracts and they just say see at the race on saturday and you're just like you're just yeah dropping, that's
3: hard you know i mean you know? i mean that- Let's just say you're a kid that um, gets that two hundred thousand dollar deal. You know, yeah. How's that guy even know how to pay his tax? <laughs> right. You know, he's sixteen years old. Yeah. So
1: parents taking the kids for money. I, 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 yeah.
3: I, 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 I mean, I, I see FC doing a little more, like, um, kind of managing their 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 young guys a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see they kind of have a team, a bit of a team trainer now. Um, yep. Kind of keeping a little bit closer watch on these guys, um, just making sure they're kind of staying, you know, yeah, staying on the right track a little bit.
1: Isn't it uh, crazy that they just, uh, for many years, like just here's your paycheck, uh, go practice. Um, <laughs> you know, um, we hope you're practicing, um, and we'll see you on Saturday. I <laughs> just uh, yeah. yeah,
3: that's something that um, could definitely
1: worked on yeah in our industry yep Uh, whether it's you know but the ama is a shell of what it should be and Feld and mx sports are you know they're in the promoting business um they're not in the taking care of people business there's no i'm not all about big brother coming all over people you know as far as my life philosophy but it almost feels like we need that a little bit in our sport a little more or something
3: uh you you know know, yeah it's um um, like you said, it can get it yeah, can get over the
1: top. But yeah, absolutely. But I just wonder, like sometimes we're like you know why why is we have WADA and Supercross and USADA and FIM and we don't have F, we have different rules here. And, you know, it sometimes just makes me shake my head. Where I'm, like there's millions of dollars at stake in our sport at the very highest level, and sometimes you're just like, wow, we're just not organized.
3: Well, so, I mean, yeah, it's it's crazy sometimes. You know, you look at you look at what's at stake, and then. You know, we're doing a track walk, and there's nails and broken glass and <laughs> the dirt, and you're just like, you know, yeah, yeah. If somebody cuts their tire and they they lose a title, I mean that's <laughs> right. That's a million dollars, you know. Yeah, because absolutely. Got a nail in your tire because somebody
1: didn't scream the dirt. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Um, or you know, with the red flags with Dungy losing that win, it's like. You know, it's a huge swing in money for Ryan Dungey, and, and it could have affected a title. It's not going to affect the title. But we're going to just arbitrarily decide that he's he's going to lose a win. And meanwhile, we see dudes jumping all the time on these flags. You've seen it. I've seen it. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, how is there not just like a, a wide-angle camera videoing the whole race every time? Yeah, yeah. It's I everything, you know? Yep, yeah. yeah. And, and then we just decide, oh, yeah, okay, Dungy, you're going to lose this win. Yeah, I just I don't get it, but I, I guess yeah. you and I could both I go on. My, yeah. Yeah. my
3: biggest complaint, really, honestly, if I could just take one thing, you know, this is what really needs
1: to be fixed.
3: Uh-huh. Priority one um, at the pro level is is just allowing these guys to be able to make a, a decent. I mean, you know, the the guys that are from 10th to 20th to 30. You know, the mm-hmm. guys that the privateer guys. So yeah, somehow structuring that so those guys aren't paying for what they're doing, you know, so at least they make a little bit of money.
1: You're you're one of the elite 20 in the world to make a 450-man event, and, yeah, you're paying to go racing. Um, yeah, it just to me it's like, you know,
3: I, and I don't want to point the finger at the promoter, you know, but, I mean, this is your product and you're selling it to people, you know, invest in it, you know, and make an investment in that. Mm-hmm. Some yeah, kind of privateer fund or, or something, you know.
1: Believe me, my listeners right now are, are waiting for me to bring up Kyle Chisholm, Nick Schmidt, because that's all I've been doing lately when I talk about how unhealthy we are, is uh, Nick Schmidt and Kyle Chisholm, who have made it, because they make 450 main events. So they're very, very, very good riders. And we have kids who are getting 10th in a regional series, maybe making double what they make, because... We've already decided that Kyle Chisholm and Nick Schmidt can't win, so we're quote unquote we're over them and we're on to a 16, 17 year old kid who's getting tenth in a regional series and he's making more money. I don't we're a little broken now, there in my opinion. You know? Um we should strive to be Nick Schmidt and Kyle Chisholm in the four fifty main event of a supercross. Yet we're already decided, ah, they can't win. We're, we're we're done with them. So
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's a that's something I see a lot of. It's like this um Win or nothing mentality is pretty strong in the sport. It's really strong. Yeah, and yeah, and that's something I don't like because I think when I watch NASCAR, I think all those guys are awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and when I watch like professional bull riding, I still think the guy that gets like 12th place is super gnarly. Yeah, of course, right, right. And so, you know, I'm like, those guys are all awesome. Yeah, you know, they should all be getting paid well for what they do. Yeah. Yeah, I wish our sport was. Kind of a little
1: more yeah. like that. Well, I, I don't know how it was in your, in whether it's road biking or downhill or mountain biking, you know, Ryan Dungey is probably making uh, five to six million a year. Would you say that's probably accurate? Yeah. 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 F- how many times we can beat him. Yeah, sure. Five to six million a year for Ryan Dungey. The man who is 10 spots below him is maybe making 200,000. It's a massive difference.
3: Yeah, but two hundred grand's okay. Yeah, I know it is, it's just, but <laughs> the guy is not making anything.
1: Okay, well then the guy in fifteenth is making fifty thousand dollars. You know, yeah. um, and that and yes, Ron Dungie should make more money. He's very good, um, but uh, the fifteenth place guy is also incredible. So, yeah, yep.
3: Um, no, but I, I kind of tie it to mm-hmm. if there's revenue, if there's revenue from ticket sales and there's revenue from TV, I, that's where I feel like it should get kicked back into the riders. Right. Um, I can't blame manufacturers and and industry sponsors paying guys to do well and putting their money where they think it's best spent to help them sell product. Right. Um, But when you're selling 60,000 seats and you're getting X amount for TV, I I feel like that should be somewhat shared
1: shared revenue. Yeah. Preaching to the choir for sure for me. Um, yeah. Before we let you go here, John Tomek on the uh, Racer X podcast, presented by Fox Racing. When you go on uh, mountain bike rides now, cross country or whatever, how far off of you are you from your peak? Um, are you way worse than you used to be, John? Do you get frustrated, or are you still yeah pretty? Yeah, ham- way worse. Okay, you're way worse, so you're pretty frustrated. I'm, <laughs> I'm
3: no, I'm pretty decent descending because okay. you know once you develop skills, they tend to kind of. Thing around. Uh-huh. So, um, certainly, I'm not as sharp as I used to be, but it's the climbing and the endurance and that, you know. Yeah. I'm I'm probably twenty pounds heavier than I used to be. Oh, know? are you really? Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm not nearly as strong. Mm-hmm. So the power to weight is not there. And, and you, and,
1: and you it's shake funny, your head. I ride
3: hills or passes that I used to ride, and I look down and see what gear I'm in. I'm just like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would be like in, <laughs> yeah. the gear ratio would be so different. You're disgusted with yourself. <laughs> it's it's just weird, you know? Uh, you're like, yeah. was I really that fast? And I'm like, yeah, I guess I was.
1: I guess I was. I can imagine. Definitely
3: not anymore.
1: <laughs> I can imagine, John, what we're talking about compared to you, compared to an average guy, what you're talking about, like compared to, you know. Uh,
3: I, you know, and I don't feel like I'm horribly slow. Yeah, you know, but yeah, yeah.
1: I must have really been fast back then. <laughs> That's all you can think about. That's it, right? Yeah. I must have just been really good. Well, you probably were. Um, there's probably a lot of amateur cyclists uh, listening to this, uh, riders that that, that that do ride uh, on or off-road, uh, and, and, and different people who are... I mean, bicycling is so big with moto people. And uh, what advice do you have for someone who, I mean, let's face it, there's people listen to this who who look up to you and, and you were, you were, you know, a God of bicycling for a long, long time. If for the average dude, like what's some advice you'd pass on for training, whether it's mountain biking, road biking, whatever, what kind of stuff do you beliefs do you stick by and things that you would help somebody out with?
3: Well, I kind of depends on where they're at, you know, with mm-hmm. what they're trying to accomplish. If it's like an amateur racer, um, even at, even at, as a, yeah, that's maybe getting a little bit beyond that. It's just having a plan, you know, mm-hmm. like a training plan that uh that you can follow and it has some science behind it. So Right. You know, and and I think that's we've seen that now in, in Moto, you know, I think that's one of the things that um has made Alden pretty successful is that not that I think he was one of the probably the first higher higher profile trainers to mm-hmm. To kind of bring that to the table, I'm sure Spencer did, but Spencer wasn't as hands on as Alden was when he started working with Ricky. So yeah, but, but that structure and that mentality, you no. know, he learned that from from his cycling history. I, you know, I guess I would you would say so. Yep. Did uh, you know Alden the at all? is the... really important. It's like it's like building blocks, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, and and that. That makes a big difference, you know. Instead of just randomly training, so
1: yeah, yeah, doing something that's structured. Did you know Alden at all? Did you cross paths with him at all until Moto? Until you got no, to no, no. Yeah, no, no.
3: I think my last World Cup cross country races were in like '96.
1: Okay, he was after that. I think
3: he was just kind of starting around that time, or was in it, but I didn't really,
1: I didn't, never really knew him. So right, right. Um, well, cool. Um, thanks for doing this, John. I really appreciate it. I, I think that. Uh, like I said, your your career, your things you've done, uh, pretty remarkable. Oh wait, one more thing I got to ask you about in my notes here. Uh, according to Wikipedia, um, you hit a spectator in Vermont uh, on a on a cross country uh, race against uh, Switzerland's Thomas Frischkent. What were you all right? How did you hit a spectator? Yeah,
3: that's a that's a pretty funny story actually. Um, these cross country trail uh, races are like they just use tape,
1: like <laughs>
3: yeah, it's yeah. like. Um, it's like flagging tape. I guess you'd probably see it. at GNC, sure, yeah, yeah. But, those
1: those ribbons, uh, yeah, fluorescent. Tape.
3: Yeah. 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 So the the whole yeah. course is taped. Well, uh-huh. they taped the trails, but sometimes people want to run across them. <laughs> the trail. So. Yeah, yeah. But it's tight. Like you're in the trees. Like I mean, this was in Vermont. So anyway, I was bombing down this descent. I was leading the race. It was a World Cup race, and and uh, come around this bending turn, and I, I'm, dude, I'm probably going twenty five thirty okay. miles an hour. Right. And this guy stepped under the tape. <laughs> right, like right in front of me and he kinda came out from behind this tree and uh, and he you know, he was just taking a stride, you know, like a normal stride. Well yeah. my front wheel hit went right between his legs. Uh, oh, and it, it was a massive yard sale. Like I just over the bars and yeah. and uh, he went flying and ran off into the trees nobody nobody <laughs> tried to find him afterwards nobody, <laughs> nobody could find him.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I bet he's probably... But
3: anyway I got up and my wheel was just totally Mm-hmm. And so I I pounded it straight enough to get it back in the bike and roll, but I had to unhook my front brake, took off and uh, I think I was back in sixth and got back to second or something. Mm-hmm. I lost the race to Thomas that day and then I ended up losing the World Cup I like two points, you know, and I would have made five points or ten
1: more points. I wouldn't have hit that guy, so... Jeez. Yeah. I hit that guy and lost the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Really, right? (laughs) Thanks a lot, guy. Thanks a lot. Um, Well, uh, yeah. Thanks again for doing this. I think it was really interesting. Uh, Like I said, a legend in the world of bicycling, and now with Eli, um, you know, well on his way to being uh, racking up wins uh, in both classes, I think, and he'll be a star in our sport for another, you know, maybe ten years or something, so um, it's great to see you around the races, you and your wife, Kathy, and uh, uh, and good luck with everything. Thanks uh, Thanks for taking the time for us, John.
3: Yeah, thanks for having
1: me on, Steve. All right, thanks. See ya. Okay, bye. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Steve Mathis Show presented by Fox Racing
3: There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil cylinders as a when I said about these modern-day guys in Switzerland or Poland or Belgium on 45 minutes on the same bike, you're not beating Roger. Are you crazy? Right. They're not doing it. If they think they're so much better nowadays
1: than they were in the days they're fools. They're different bikes, different times. The beast from the east, Damon Bradshaw.
3: It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to
0: take the money. The working-class hero, Doug Henry.